If you would, take that Bible out and open it up to Jeremiah. Um, You're going to be maybe a little bit after halfway here. Chapter 33 is where we are going to be landing. We're going to, our verses are 14 through 18. We're going to actually spend some time in verses 10 through 13 as well. And if you don't have a Bible, take the one out in front of you. You're not off the hook. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our early Christmas present to you as we share each and every week um, the Dwayne Arnold. Bible Fund is a fund that we established here last year um, so that anyone who needs a Bible can receive one. And so that Bible in front of you has been purchased so that you can take it home. Um, We also provide Bibles to the um, Lakeland Hospital here in Elkhorn for anyone who has a need. We have a box I'll be bringing out to the chaplain there this week. And uh, so we mean it. We want everyone to have the hope of God's word with them wherever they go. Jeremiah 33 verse 14 is where we're going to start. Uh, But before we dive into that, I want to, if you've been around St. John's for a while, you may know that I've made the case for several years that I think two years old is the best age to celebrate Christmas with a child. And, and, and I've thought this for quite, quite a while. I was talking to the Quists afterwards, and they were sharing with me their stories. They got a two-year-old, and he's kind of, he's helping me with my case. But for me, this got solidified back about four years ago when our daughter Sophie was two and a half. You may remember, because I shared this on Christmas Eve, she absolutely loved Christmas. She still does, but when she was two, she loved it. She had no idea what it was. <laughs> But she loved all of it anyway. And that's why I think it's the best age to celebrate Christmas with a child. Because at two, they're old enough to experience everything. You know, when they're real little, they can't even really open up the presents. They need their help and all that stuff. But when they're two, they can do it all. They can experience everything. But they're not old enough to expect everything that we expect from this season. The presents and the Santas and the, and the Christmas cookies and all of those things and the Hallmark Christmas movies that are all the same no matter what, right? It has nothing to do with my sermon. It's just something my wife watches a lot of. So anyway, so to a two-year-old, everything is still new and amazing. All of those trappings of the season. And our, our youngest son, Grayson, is two, and so we get to experience this at least one more time. But I'll never forget four years ago when Sophie was two because she articulated with words what I've had a sense of for years. That year, our, our neighbors behind us, they had put up their Christmas tree early, like before Thanksgiving early. Um, now, I, I just said that at the 8.30 service, and I offended people. They were like, you're not allowed to do that. How many of you here put up a Christmas tree before Thanksgiving this year? My parents were at the last service, and they had put their hand up too. So, so anyway, we, we wait till after Thanksgiving, so we hadn't done it yet. And Sophie noticed that our neighbors had put up their Christmas tree in their living room already, and she looked out the window, and she said, Daddy, look, there's Christmas. Right there, like in the neighbor's living room, is Christmas. And so you can imagine, it was a few weeks later that my wife, Alyssa, she put up our Christmas tree during nap time, because that's what you do when you have a two-year-old. And she got up, and she comes out of her room after her nap, and she sees this beautifully decorated Christmas tree in her own living room. And she says to Alyssa, she says, Did you bring Christmas to me? 
And you can say, ah, because it really was that adorable. That's why I keep thinking about it every single year. Because it wasn't possessive, it wasn't selfish, it wasn't any of those things. It was, it was her response. Everything about it, her tone, her words, suggested that to her this incredible thing that used to be distant was right here in her living room. And it hit me so deeply that year that I used it as my Christmas Eve sermon. And it continues to hit me because every Christmas I can't help but think about the people that I know and the people I don't know that are asking the same question, is Christmas for me? Because see, unlike our two-year-old, for many of us, the promises of peace and hope of Christmas feel so much further away than our neighbor's house. And if that's you this weekend, and Sarah alluded to that in her opening prayer after the songs that we sang, if that's you, I want you to know that you're not alone. It's actually biblical. And for those who waited generations for the first Christmas, it didn't feel close to them either. And that's what brings us to the reading that we're going to read today. Today is a reading from Jeremiah, and it jumps backwards from where we began the season of Advent last week. Uh, It's a season that's marked by anticipation and waiting for what isn't yet, but what is to come. It's, It's the mark of a Christian. I came across this quote in another article I was reading this week by theologian Karl Barth. He said it this way, what other time or season can or will the church ever have but that of Advent? What he's saying is that we are all waiting for something. I mean, how many of us can say that there's not something unfinished in some place in our lives? And if that's true for you, then then you and I are in good company with the prophet that we're reading from and the people that he's writing to in these words we're reading today. It comes from, again, the prophet known as Jeremiah. He was known as the weeping prophet because he spoke to the broken people of the southern kingdom of Israel at the time that they would get taken over by their enemies, the Babylonians. Their whole world would be destroyed, and that included the capital city, Jerusalem, and included their homes, and included the holy temple, their great church. And as we established last week, remember we were going backwards. Last week we talked about what eventually happens in history. They come back. They get a chance to come back and they get a chance to return and to rebuild. And yet what we talked about last week is that even though they got to do that, there is no rebuilding the things that were lost. And the chances are that you probably can relate. Even though they rebuilt the temple when they came back and the city walls and their homes, You can't rebuild time that's been lost, can you? You can't rebuild missed opportunities, severed relationships, the loss of life. All of that happened. And it was happening in the midst of this loss is where Jeremiah says these words, which out of context don't seem like they fit at all. He says in verse 14, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. Verse 15, In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called. Say this with me. The Lord, our righteous Savior. 
Now, if I didn't know any better, I would assume that Jeremiah is a two-year-old. I would assume that he must not know anything that we've studied so far in this series. The long history of these people and how they have over and over again have come up against adversity. They've been unfaithful to God. I would think reading these words that he must be ignorant to the truth that they were oppressed, God saved them, and then they ended up oppressing others and now they again are going to be oppressed themselves. I would think from these words he doesn't know anything about that, but if you read the rest of the book, you'll see that the reason he's called the weeping prophet is because he knows all too well the burden that these people are facing, the weight that they're carrying, the shortcomings of evil that has been pressing them on all sides. And it's in the middle of all of this that he proclaims a message of peace, of hope, of safety, of wrongs that are being made right. And and I just have to name, it's not hard to make the connection between the geographical location that we're reading about right now in the context of the same exact region in our world today as Israel and Palestine find themselves pressed and embroiled in war and death. And it makes me wonder how many Christians are there looking out their window and asking that question. Is Christmas for me? And then I think about some of you and myself And all the people that look out their windows and wonder the same question. And if you're asking that question this year, I want you to know the answer is yes. And Jeremiah brings us hope by showing us where hope comes out of the hopelessness that shows us that peace can be born out of conflict, out of adversity, out of desolation. And there's two ways that he teaches us this. The first way is that peace comes through naming what is. Say that with me. Peace comes through naming what is. Jeremiah recognizes and names the utter destruction that these people are facing. Now, if you've learned anything about prophets as we've studied prophets, they don't sugarcoat anything. And it's not because they're the kind of people, some of us are these kinds of people, we say, you know what, I just tell it like it is. you have anybody like that in your life? Maybe you are that person in the life of somebody else. That's not a prophet. Prophets tell it the way God sees it. Prophets tell it the way it really is. And it's not an opinion, it's the way it is. And so just a few verses before these passages here, the Lord repeats a description that these people have made for their world, and it's an accurate one. He says, this is what the Lord says. You say about this place that you're living in, it is a desolate waste without people or animals. That is a literal description of war because a place can only be described as desolate if at one time it was full. And so what does the Lord do? The Lord promises that it will be filled again when he continues in the second part of the verse. He says, Yet in the towns of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness 
The voices of bride and bridegroom. The voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. For I, says the Lord, will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. It continues with this description of shepherds and sheep and flocks on pastures and and everything being the way that it ever was in the best of days, in the best that it ever could be. That's the sounds of joy. That's the sounds of a wedding. That's the voices of thanksgiving in the house of the Lord. How many of you were here for our Thanksgiving Eve worship service? Show of hands. Is there not a sweeter sound in this place than a people that have gathered and they have this spiritual gratitude inside of them as they're singing out? And I just, I can't help but think this is our 125th year, that for 125 years, that same sound has come out of this place, this sound that gives thanks to the Lord Almighty for the Lord is good, his love endures forever. The Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah that this place where none of that is happening will experience all of those things again. And yet when bombs explode, whether they're literal weapons of mass destruction or the desolation that comes through the implosion of a relationship or a health diagnosis or the loss of a close friend or a family member, when those things happen... Doesn't everything in life stop? It just stops. I think about the first days after the world shut down during the initial stages of the pandemic in 2020. It's almost four years ago now. Can you believe that? Almost four years ago. And I remember Alyssa and our kids and I, we we spent the afternoon because there was nothing to do, right? We, We spent the afternoon, we put the kids in the van and we drove around one day, just in the first week or two, drove around this area and even drove up through Milwaukee. And we drove past all of the places that we have never seen without buzzing of people. Like, like for example, Alyssa and I, just a few days before everything shut down, we happened to be out on a date, and we went to the Milwaukee Public Market. Have you ever been to the Milwaukee Public Market? Like, you can't go there without it being shoulder-to-shoulder people. And we drove by, and there was no one. We drove by the zoo. We drove by the malls. We drove by the churches. And there was no one in any of those places. It was all empty. It was silent. It was desolate. And I look back and I think, no wonder the world went from shock to anger. Because the one thing that united all of us in the moments that felt like nothing was uniting anyone was we all knew that this is not the way the world is supposed to be. Right? We knew that this is not the way that we're called to live. And that is the moment that Jeremiah is speaking into. He's speaking into a situation that looks just like that. It looks just like the streets of Israel in Gaza. It looks just like a hospital room where a patient, your loved one, is passing away. I shared this once before. I remember thinking this very thing just earlier this year when I was with, with Herb Priester. He's, he's one of our uh, dear members and a former retired Lutheran pastor, and he got rather suddenly sick. And just a week later, he passed away. And 
And I was there in the hospital room when he passed away, and it was just like any other experience that I've ever had with somebody in that moment. And I know many of you have been in that experience with your loved ones as well. In that moment, do you not feel the longing for the sights and the sounds and the joys and the memories and the conversations and all of the experiences that you realize it just hits you that you've been taking for granted all of the moments when that person was still there? See, Jeremiah knows that feeling. The people that he's speaking to, they know that feeling. And yet, before he can speak hope into that moment, until he can, before he can speak peace into that moment, he's got to name the desolation that is right now. And I point that out because so do you. And so do I. In just a few hours, and maybe this is why it's on my mind, I'm going to be sharing a different message from God's Word at the Blue Christmas service. I know some of you are going to be there for our local funeral home here in town. And and we're going to sit in the midst of probably hundreds of people that have lost their loved ones this past year and for whom Christmas is not going to be the same. And I've learned that That if I want to speak any hope into moments like that at all, it has to begin with a recognition of what has been lost. Because the more aware we are of the loss, the more our hearts long for what can only be found in God. Which is where Jeremiah continues by teaching us the second thing we learn about peace that comes out of brokenness and conflict. And that is that loss becomes fertile ground from which peace can grow. Loss becomes fertile ground from which peace can grow. I want to read again verses 14 through 15. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promises that I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. Now, if you, you're forgiven if this is the first Sunday you've been with us, but if you've been a part of any of this series that we've been through, we've been going through the Bible chronologically from the very beginning, and you know that the line of King David is anything but righteous. And yet, it is from that context, that contaminated soil, that broken place, that a new branch will be born. And I point out that history because that promise is in Jesus. And it is the same promise for you and for me as well. This is the peace and hope that we all long for and wait for in the season of Advent. It's the peace and hope that Karl Barth says that we're all waiting for in Christians in every season, not because we're waiting to celebrate that Jesus was born into the world 2,000 years ago, but because even more than that, we are celebrating the promise that he will come back. That he will return and he will restore everything that has been lost. And he will make all things new forever. Amen. It's coming. It's his promise. But it all begins with what is broken. 
And it's not because the broken is what produces our salvation. It's because out of the brokenness, out of it, something perfect and new will begin. I mean, this is the story of Jesus, right? Isn't this why Jesus was born into the broken world that we live in? To die on the cross for the sins of the world so that out of death, three days later, he would rise eternally and victoriously over all of the threats that threaten to take our lives away. But if we're living as people that benefit from that, if we say amen to that, if we know that that is the hope that we have in Christ when our lives come to an end, then how does that bring peace and hope to our lives right now? And in the words that are attributed to C.S. Lewis... I think it puts it well. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. We are invited by God to do that. Because God does that. Every day when we give even the bitter, the most bitter of endings back to him and trust that his righteousness will bring salvation from the darkest and most broken places in our lives, that his beauty will grow new life out of our ashes, that his branch will sprout up from our desolation. This is what will come about when Jesus is born as the righteous branch sprouted from the line of David and the people of Israel. And yet back at the time of Jeremiah, they would still have to go through unbearable loss of their land, their prosperity, their people, their lives, and their livelihood. And it's in facing all of those losses that Jeremiah proclaims God's promise that would be fulfilled in Jesus, and that is that in Christ, the end of anything is the beginning of everything. That's what Jesus himself said in the Gospel of Matthew when he said, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, But whoever loses their life for me will find it. We find our lives in him because he lost his life for us. So that our lives would be found and every soul has been waiting for that truth to be fulfilled in them ever since. So what I want to invite you to do at this time is as we prepare our hearts to light the second candle of the Advent wreath, these are promises that are fulfilled in the coming of Christ. We're going to light the first candle of hope and we're going to light the second candle of peace. And I want to invite you to to maybe even close your eyes and ask the question that I asked at the beginning. What is something that you're waiting for? What is a place in your life that you need God to bring his hope and his peace into, a place that feels desolate and empty and broken, something that has ended, that you need the power of God to bring a new and eternal beginning into. Pray those things as we light this candle and as we watch. A humble and faithful servant of the Lord, searching a lifetime, For the consolation of Israel, here's a message from the Lord. You will not die until you see the Messiah. The whole world, whether they knew it or not, waited, watched, wondered with great anticipation for divine deliverance. And then one still and starry night, 
we peer into the face of perfect peace. We who once waited in darkness now see the light of salvation. We who stirred in restless turmoil welcome the newborn King. He is the light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of the people of Israel. He is the long-awaited promise, the tidings of comfort, the goodwill toward man, the gift from God to his people, washing away darkness with light, offering forgiveness of sin with a cleansing sacrifice that blots out the permanent stain on the soul of all humankind and sets it into an eternal peace for all who call on the name of the Lord. The consolation of Israel has begun in the quiet town of Bethlehem. It is not the end of the story. It is only the beginning. <laughs>